Lance Kruger is a wildlife photographer, and he's got more than 25 years under his belt doing it. I was interested in connecting with him, not only because he's one of the best at what he does, but just the the amount of time that he spent in the woods with white-tailed deer. He dropped some you know really valuable tips from a hunting perspective, but also for anybody that's aspiring to get into wildlife photography. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Horny Deer Sense Podcast. I'm your host, founder of Horny Deer Sense, Scott Pratt. In this podcast, we connect with personalities across the outdoors, sharing hunting tips, reliving old hunting memories, and discussing life in general. Our goal as a podcast and as a company is to bring new hunters into this great lifestyle and to help keep the ones that we've got. So settle in, hang out with us for a little while on the Horny Deer Sense Podcast. Lance Kruger, welcome to the Horny Deer Sense Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I've been a, a, a fan uh, for a couple of years now. I, I really didn't spend a whole lot of time on Instagram until we started Horny Deer Sense. And then, you know, getting more into Instagram and social media and following different accounts, I stumbled across your account and uh at the time you know i wasn't familiar with you as a photographer but over the last couple of years and getting more familiar with your work this is one that i've had kind of tucked away hoping that i could make happen so really do appreciate you taking the time you're welcome so and i got your bio put up here on your website you're right now tucked down in uh, the southern part of texas and you're kind of born and raised down there right yeah Born in the central Texas part of uh, Texas, uh, San Antonio area. Lived there till I was 12 and moved down here with my parents and uh, been down here for 39 years now. Okay. So in, it made me laugh because when you were describing the area, uh, in quotations, you put everything either bites, pokes, or stings you. <laughs> yep, that's, that's uh, South Texas. That sounds like South Texas. Yeah, yeah, we got rattlesnakes, cougars, uh, you know, bobcats, uh, cat claw brush, you know, white brush, black brush, every, you know, mesquites with, you know, two inch thick uh, uh, thorns on them that'll go right through your uh, six ply tires, you know, it, it's, uh-huh. uh, everything's got to protect itself, horny toads, you know, all kinds of stuff, everything's got, you know, spines or, you know, uh, thorns or something that's going to poke you. So, and I'm guessing you probably got, actually not, I'm, I'm not guessing, I read it off your profile, but you started uh, your photography down in that area. As far as like close calls, because I know the rattlesnakes y'all have down there are just ridiculous and you're spending uh, a substantial amount of time in the outdoors. What are, is there one specific incident where it, it was just this close to being catastrophic? Um, I, I mean, I would say that, uh, I mean, I've got so many stories I could go into that involve photography or not, but I've got uh, many incidents where I'm sitting in a blind and I'm waiting on a buck and I, I see something kind of, you know, flash through the brush and, and I think, oh boy, here he is, it's, <laughs> it's the big guy. And uh, anyway, then all of a sudden out of the out of the brush comes, you know, a half dozen illegal aliens walking through the brush, you know. Oh, wow. And, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of unusual compared to probably what most people have to deal with 
That's uh no, that's uh that's one that I've never encountered, and honestly, it, I should have thought of, thought about it before now. But <laughs> you mentioned yeah, it. I only live eight miles from Mexico. I mean, it's it you know it we're right on the Rio Grande River, which is the border between you know the U.S. and Mexico, and um, you know Reynosa, which is where all the Border Wars TV shows and all these uh, you know TV shows about all the you know border violence and all the stuff that's going on across the river. It used to be like across, you know, from California was the hot spot, and then it was El Paso, and then Laredo, and it just seems like it keeps getting south. And um, you know, we're the hot spot down here for all the border violence between the drug cartels and all that kind of stuff. Ah, oh, that's uh, that sounds just lovely. Um, yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, in when you guys moved down there, so before you moved to South Texas. Uh, you obviously have just a great love for the outdoors and it's very, you know, not to you know, pump you up because you're sitting here in front of me, uh, you know, Zoom video as it is, but watching what you do, it's very easy to see that you're very passionate and have just a deep love for the outdoors in general. Before you guys moved down to South Texas, what was your background like? Did your dad hunt? Did he bring you into it? Where did, where did this love uh, kind of originate, I guess? Well, my dad was a, uh, a professional gunsmith. He uh, custom or was into building custom uh, deer rifles back in the 70s and 80s. And um, every weekend we would go out and hunt or fish or camp or do something. And um, so I grew up doing that and, um, you know, fished since I was three years old, hunted since I was 10 years old. And uh, then when I was 16, uh, my dad got hired by a rich rancher down here in South Texas uh, from a sporting goods store that he was working at in here in South Texas as the uh, general manager of the sporting goods where they had the biggest gun selection in South Texas. And um, anyway, he hired my dad to manage this ranch for him. And he had, you know, whitetails is like a 2,800 acre ranch. They had whitetails, oh, wow. they had exotics, they had, you know, ostrich, zebras, rhinos, bonnie buck, you know, endangered animals, all kinds of stuff. And so when I was 16, I had always seen the hunting magazines uh, that my dad was subscribed to. And I always, you know, looked at those photos just thinking they were incredible of all this wildlife, especially white-tailed deer. And um, so I wanted to get a camera and shoot photos at the ranch because I had this opportunity to, you know, photograph a really unique place. And so I was 16 at the time working at a, a local restaurant cleaning tables. And uh, it was my first official job, even though I had, you know, mowed yards since I was 10 years old. And uh, got together $300 and bought a uh, Canon AE-1 program camera and a 100 to 300 zoom lens. And most people, when they buy a camera back then, would buy the kit lens, which was a little 50 millimeter lens that you shoot people pictures with. But I wanted to photograph wildlife. So I bought body only and then the lens, which was a 100 to 300 zoom, which, you know, is for, you know, shooting wildlife and stuff like that. So I, the first photo I took out at the ranch was a record book, uh, black buck antelope from India oh, wow. uh, that had been imported over. And, uh, you know, I photographed uh, my, my quail dog. I photographed uh, the rhinos at the ranch. I photographed uh, all this different stuff. But one of the things that I love the most about that first roll of film was a white-tailed doe and, a, and a, her fawn that I photographed because it was summertime the first time I shot photos out there. And um, so anyway, that kind of, started off my career that first roll of film and 
you know, went through different levels of frustration with photography where I didn't have anything come out and all that kind of stuff. Thought I was going to quit doing it. You know, I was, you know, so fed up with it because I was basically, you know, at the time, like, you know, when it was not summertime, when I was, you know, working a job, when it was, you know, school time, I didn't have a job other than mowing yards and that kind of stuff. And so I had, a, you know, um, a, what do they call it? It's not a salary, but you get from your parents. I can't remember uh, um, where you get an allowance. Oh, an allowance. That's the word I'm looking for. It's been so long since I've got, actually, you know, I don't even know if I'm, my parents ever gave me one. Well, I had to do a whole lot to get it. Believe me, <laughs> it was not an allowance. It was, it was a, uh, you know, a wage. <laughs> my dad would pay us and then make us feel guilty about the mortgage and have us chip in. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So anyway, so I would uh, be able to afford one roll of film per week. And then the next week I would have enough money to process it. And so at the time it was slide film that I was shooting. And so I would, you know, buy a roll of film one week, shoot it up and take it into the photo lab, get it processed the next week because I had enough money the next week. And, um, you know, would shoot photos that way, that way where I'd shoot every other week. I'd get, you know, get Photoshop. That's awesome. And um, so anyway, so that's uh, kind of where it started. And, you know, I, I ended up uh, selling my first photo when I was 19 years old. I started when I was 16 and uh, shot photos out at the ranch and different. So ranches. you're three years yeah. into this before you sell a photo. Right. Yeah. I shot for three years and uh, it was 1985 when I was 16. So I'm 51 now here in uh, 2020. And uh, so I started out, you know, in 1985 when it was all manual focused you know, manual exposure, slide film, you know, and, and, uh, so you're like was, the no, whitetail photographer OG of the group now. Well, kind of, I actually, <laughs> when I first started out early on, I was the youngest, uh, full-time wildlife, uh, whitetail deer photographer in the industry. Did you ever uh, imagine then, that it would carry you to where you are now in your career being? You no, know, I had no idea. Cause when I got, when I got into it, I was not looking to try to get published. I was just wanting to shoot photos like what I saw in those hunting magazines when I was a kid. And so I shot photos for three years and people were telling me, even that first roll of film, people were saying, you know, that first roll of film with the white tailed doe and, you know, the ostriches and stuff. They're like, man, these are really good. You got a natural eye. I had some professional photographers at the Photoshop that I would drop the film off at. And uh, this lady, Grace Buchanan, who was one of my first original mentors, she was a newspaper and studio photographer. She wasn't into wildlife at all, but she saw my first roll of film. And she was like, man, these are really good. You got really a natural eye for it. And I was like, oh, okay. I, I didn't know. I was just putting stuff in the viewfinder and clicking the button, you know. <laughs> but uh, I shot till I was 19. And so many people told me that my photos were good enough, you know, to that they were like the caliber of the magazines that I should send some in. So I got a hold of uh, a, a state magazine called Texas Hunters Directory, which isn't even in existence anymore. And, um, they basically said they, you know, didn't pay anything for photos, uh, that they were such a small magazine, but they uh, helped a lot of photographers launch their careers. And so I thought about it and I said, okay, I'll send you some. So they ended up using six photos and they sent me some copies of the magazine. And in that issue, uh, one of my um, idols at the time was this photographer called Jerry Smith, who was also from South Texas. And he, at that time, he was in Field and Stream and Outdoor Life and all the big magazines. And uh, he had one photo in that issue, and I had six. So I was pretty excited that I beat Jerry Smith. You know, oh, not yeah. that he was even trying at the time. Just start uh, swelling up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So uh, anyway, so I um, 
you know, uh, got some copies of the magazine and the editor told me at the time I would could take those tear sheets and send it to the next magazine. So then I, you know, sent some tear sheets off to some other magazines and said, Hey, here's some of my published photos. I'd like to send you photos. And that was to the pain public publications. And so my next deal was a uh, magazine down here called Rio magazine. And I actually wrote an article and had some photos in there and I got paid all of $90 uh, for that article Big and time. photos. And so anyway, then it just moved up from there, but I only have given my photos away one time. That was my first photo sale. I said, I'm never going to give my photos away again after that. And, uh, it just kept going from there. And by the age of 21, um, I was putting myself through college. Um, I was working on a business marketing degree and, um, you know, paying for my own college. My parents didn't have the money to send me. So I was paying for college. And uh, they were living up in Central Texas. I was paying for all my, you know, um, uh, apartment I was living in, all that kind of stuff. And I was doing that by working full time at a camera store down here, and uh, also doing my wildlife photography. Uh, then I quit the quit the uh, photo um, uh, camera job and uh, did photography full time. And at 24, the day after I graduated from college, because I was paying for school, it took me seven years to get out of school. So I. Um, so I was on the seven year plan to, to get out of college instead of four years like most people do. Uh, but anyway, I uh, had to work through the whole summer to be able to pay for the next semester of college. And so I just did it basically a semester at a time. So ended up at uh, 24, I graduated in December of 1994. And uh, the day after that, I went on assignment for a magazine to Montana to photograph mule deer. And I've been traveling ever since then. The rest so, is history. Kind, kind of. And so then I moved up from the, the small national magazines at that point to the mid-sized nationals. And, you know, now since basically 19, oh, I guess 1997 or so, I've been doing shooting for the big magazines like Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, you know, uh, those. Awesome. I love those stories. You know, I think a lot of times being born and raised here in the U.S., you kind of take some things for granted or a lot of people do, but to hear a story like yours where you're really having to forge your own way, you know, but you locked in on what you wanted to do. And, you know, obviously there were ups and downs uh, throughout the process, but ultimately you were able to make this happen, not because you were born into a great deal of wealth or any other things that, most people assume that people have that achieve things like you, you literally carved this life out for yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was very fortunate. I was raised in a, you know, very uh, godly family that had, uh, you know, morals and ethics and, you know, the outdoor lifestyle as our priority in our family and, you know, obviously God in our family. And um, we, uh, you know, I was, I was fortunate that I was raised with a wealth, of awesome parents yeah. and not a wealth of you know monetary you know gain and stuff like that and i had friends of mine that grew up with wealth and they didn't turn out so good and right. so i'm very fortunate uh, to have been raised by really great parents that uh, didn't have a lot to give other than themselves and uh, what they knew and uh, i was the kind of kid that you know listened to what my parents said i was a parent pleaser firstborn kind of kind of kid that right. uh, listened to what my parents said for the most part. Not always. I, there was times that I, you know, didn't want do what they said, but I wanted to, you know, I, I felt like they knew what they were talking about. So anyway, so I, I feel like uh, 
I've become the person I am, you know, a lot because of uh, the good rearing that I had. Yeah, no, I, I'm right there with you. The older I get and you know, Mike Lee and I were talking on the podcast that he and I did, how everybody is dealt a different hand in life, you know, and you know, if you're dealt, not hating on anybody, if you're dealt four aces, God bless you. <laughs> you know? right. I wasn't, but the, the older that I get in, you know, kind of just seeing more of your surroundings and those that are around you, there is, you know, I just feel like you said, very fortunate to be born into the family that I was born into. I'm right there with you, man. So in one of the, one of the main reasons that your Instagram account caught my eye, obviously your photography work is, you know, is as good as it comes. Let's, you know, let's just put that out there. You've, uh, they, they say, if you spend 10,000 hours doing anything, you're a professional at it. God knows you've got more than 10,000 hours taking photos. Like I have no problem saying you're great at what you do, but beyond the photographs, the captions and the details that you go into and uh, just the, the writing in general, that's really what sets your account apart for me. You know, as much time as you spend in the outdoors photographing any number of animals, you have to be somewhat of a wildlife whisperer at this point. <laughs> you know? Like you, you've probably spent more, more time out there than you have in your, your own bed that you sleep in every night. But if you could just kind of what pulls you into go it's so much more than a picture and you know, we're a society of instant likes and stuff, but you actually take the time to detail the situation and, and go into uh, really just another level of detail about what's going on for your readers. Right. Yeah. What I want to do is, you know, in my captions, I want to share with people, you know, what I've learned from that experience there, what happened in that situation. I try to tell the story behind the photo, um, you know, things that I've learned in general over and over and over um, that I've seen as far as deer behavior that I've, you know, sometimes haven't had heard anybody else write about or tell about things that I've noticed out in the woods um, and uh, you know, share with people about how I do my blinds because I remember as a little kid, I always had this, you know, dream that I wanted to be invisible and, you know, be able to, you know, I still have like, that dream land. Yeah. Be like a fly <laughs> on a wall kind of thing. And the closest I've been able to find to doing that, uh, it, you know, and I, before I go on with that, um, I, I remember thinking, man, I would love to be a white tailed deer, but I remember thinking of all these scenarios. Well, if I was a big buck, you know, I, I might get shot. Uh, so I don't want to, I don't know if I want to be a big buck. Do I want to be a little buck? Um, do I want to be a doe? And I thought about the bucks chasing you and all that stuff. And I was like, no, I don't think I want to be a doe. So anyway, I, I thought I want to see what whitetail deer do. And I, you know, I was just a little, you know, a little kid, little teenager or whatever, thinking of these things. And the closest I've found to doing that is, you know, with, with blinds and how I've, use blinds and been able to fine tune it over 35 years of, you know, how to basically be invisible because of a blind. And um, so anyway, so I've, you know, I've come up with a lot of techniques that I fine tuned over the years uh, to where I feel like truly I am invisible. And, so, um, and I'm glad you brought that up. One of the, one of the big things that we shoot for, not only with the podcast, but just the company in general 
we want to grow the sport. You know, we want new people because, you know, if people are dying off, like old hunters are dying off and they're not being replaced, you know, our, our number of hunters dwindle every year. So from, I guess that'd be a good starting place with the blinds for somebody listening that has either recently got into hunting or thinking about getting into hunting. What are some things that you have found out in and around just a setup with a blind? Well, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is, and I, I've learned it through um, photography, is uh, the inverse square law, which in photography, basically that means for every doubling of the distance uh, that light is, or having, you know, the, the half the amount of light uh, or distance you have from the light, it cuts light not in half, it cuts light four times. It oh, cuts wow. it in you know, for uh, like a quarter of the amount of light. And so one of the things that I do in blinds is I want to black out inside those blinds. And that's why the blinds, um, like the commercial pop-up type blinds that I use a lot of on the ground is uh, they've got camouflage on the outside to try to blend in with a brush and stuff around. But on the inside, a properly designed blind is black on the inside. And most people don't really, really realize why that is. And so I have learned that if you've got camouflage, a lot of times you look at camouflage and they've got branches and stuff that are parts of it are like white. I mean, there's, yeah. there's like really, you know, a lot of contrast there and that's good when you're up in a tree stand or in the brush or whatever, you want that contrast uh, between the lights and darks of the camo, but in a blind, you don't want that. So, and so black, let's, let's yeah. say horny deer scent hoodie like I'm wearing right now. Exactly. You can find it www.hornydeersense.com. <laughs> there you go. I'm just kidding. But to your point. But that's that's exactly what I wear. Is I wear all black. I and I don't even if I've got like your logo of the deer rack on your on your chest there. I'll take a sharpie marker and black that out. I don't you want any contrast at all because they will see the movement you know of you inside the blind with that. Um, I wear black head nets. I wear black hats. I wear black beanies. Um, I will wear black everything inside a blind. I even black out my lenses um, so that because my, I use Canon lenses, which are white, and I will use um, either black um, uh, gaffer's tape or, uh, you know, black duct tape uh, or, you know, uh, even they make these neoprene covers that I use nowadays to cover up the lenses and I don't get camouflage like everybody else does. I get pure black. So I want to black out inside that blind. The thing that bow hunters have the advantage over me is that they can black out by using that inverse square law by getting away from the windows and closing up as many windows as possible. Um, I have a theory. I call it the L-shaped L theory, uh, the, you know, L for Lance, I guess you could say. But if you look at a blind from above, you only want to have at most two windows open. You want to have uh, preferably one window open. Uh, to let less light in because if you have two windows open you've got double the amount of light getting into that blind right so what you want to do what a bow hunter can do is if they've got like let's say the front window open they can back away from that and almost get in the back corner of that blind and that is doing that uh, inverse square law I was talking to you about where it cuts the light and every time that you double the distance of getting back there's one-fourth the amount of light getting into that onto that hunter now that's very so you're you're better off with a black bow, uh, black clothing, black everything, uh, black face paint or black head net, 
uh, to try to blend in with those shadows and the blackness of the back of that blind. Going back to the L-shaped theory, uh, or it, it's, you could think of it as a 90 degree theory. If you've got that one front window open, and let's say you had the window behind you open, if you move a deer that's looking through there and can see daylight on the other side behind you is going to see your silhouette, your black silhouette moving around. Oh, absolutely. So my philosophy is that I never have opposite windows open at the same time. I'll have one window open, let's say in front. And if I have the left window open, I never have the right window open or the back window open. I will only have at most two windows open so that if a deer's off on your left-hand side, and a window's open on your left, they can't see through to the other side, daylight on the other side, a brush or whatever, and see you moving around between them. So that's my L-shaped theory of um, having windows open. You're cutting the light by having the fewer amount of lights op open as possible. Secondly, um, they can't see silhouette you between the two, plus blacking out and getting as far away from the windows as possible. But as the wildlife photographer, I've got the problem where I need to be up as close as I can to the windows to be able to pan with a deer that is, you know, chasing a doe or, right. you know, running or whatever the situation is left and right. That's the thing. So, I mean, you don't have a gun or a bow in your hand, but you're still hunting. You know what I mean? Exactly. And here, here's the thing also. Um, I've got to be at the same distance as a bow hunter. Uh, almost all my photos are taken 50 yards or less. You know, I can photograph, you know, a deer you know, 100 yards out, 200 yards out, but they just get smaller and smaller in the frame. And so um, lenses, everybody thinks, oh, that 500 millimeter lens you got, you could photograph a deer at 500 yards and see the, you know, gnats on his eyelashes. And it's like, no, he's going to be a little <laughs> tiny brown dot at 500 yards. You won't even hardly be able to tell it's even a deer. So but most of my photos are 50 yards or less. That's impressive. Uh, most of my photos are uh, 25 to 30 yards that I shoot for covers of magazines to fill the frame. Uh, so I'm basically a bow hunting distance. And um, I've, got, um, I've got to worry about background and lighting angle that a bow hunter doesn't need to worry about. As long as a bow hunter can see the deer and it's in a shooting lane, he can shoot at it. With me, I've got to worry about other you know, factors that a bow hunter doesn't need to worry about. So, and I can't get up in a tree because that makes the deer look smaller because I'm above them and you lose their legs. Yeah. So I need to be on eye level with them to make them look as big as they are or even lower than them and shoot up at them to make them look like they're the Hartford elk up on the mountain, you know, looking bigger than they really are. Yeah. So, um, so that's why I can't get up in tree stands to try to, you know, get my scent over the top of the deer or whatever and get out of their line of sight. You, you, you definitely put some work in and there's different things that interest me uh, just in talking to you and how much time that I know you have to spend out there to get all of these amazing photos. You hear people all the time get caught up on, you know, looking at different apps, telling them the best times to be in the woods and the different things that, you know, they're basing uh, whether or not they go hunting on or not. For somebody that doesn't get paid unless you're out there getting the photos that you need, how much stock do you put in to all of those measures? Um, into like moon phase and, you know, all the weather stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Just everything in general, you know, then there's different apps now that, you know, have like a window of time that they say you should be in the woods. Like from 
the time that you've been out there and have witnessed deer in their natural environment, a lot of times as natural as it gets, as far as, you know, not having to deal with, you know, human pressure sometimes. What, what can you say as far as, uh, I guess for somebody hung up on that and not going into the woods, unless an app dictates that they go into it, like what's been your experience in and around that? Well, the the mantra that I try to preach to people every chance I get is time in the field. They want to know what the secret, you know, silver bullet is that, you know, how I get photos of these deer. And it's spending the most time that you can in the field. Boom. Um, time in the field is my philosophy of the silver bullet. But the thing is, it takes a lot of years. And, you know, I know way more now than I did, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And I knew more at, you know, 15 years ago than I did 30 years ago. So the more time you can spend in the woods, the better, um, the more you can learn. Um, and when I'm on a photo shoot, you know, I live in South Texas, so I've got to drive, you know, two days to get to these places, uh, three days if I go to like New York state and, and um, you know, or Montana or Wyoming, you know, it's three days drive. So when I'm gone for like, let's say three to four weeks at a time, um, I am paying X number of dollars every day in gas, food, lodging, you know, all the different expenses it takes to go on these trips. And I know it's costing me X number of hundred, hundreds of dollars per day to be at that place. Um, I go out no matter what the situation is, unless it's dangerous. If it's like lightning and yeah. you know it's like dangerous where i can't even get to my blind or whatever i i won't go out in that situation or if i'm deathly ill uh, but i am going out no matter what the situation is no matter what the moon phase is no matter what the apps say of what the best feeding times or whatever are or what days of the you know of the month are the best i'm i'm out there every day no matter what and so my philosophy is if you have, if you're independently wealthy and you don't work and you don't have, you know, to worry about what days off you have, my philosophy is go out whenever you can, every yeah. day that you can. I love it. And, you know, don't go just because, you know, say it's a bad day and you're like, well, I'm not going to go because the moon phases aren't right or whatever. Go out no matter what, because you're going to learn something one way or the other, whether to do something or not to do something in the future, you're going to learn from every time you're out there. I learn here I am 35 years later and I learn stuff every day, every day I'm out in the woods or it's a reminder of past things that I've seen where yes. I can like build up, you know, a sequence of events that I've learned under the same situations that I'm like, man, I remember this happening before. And, you know, it reinforces in your mind, man, I need to go in this situation here. I need to go sit here, you know, uh, over a scrape or over a food plot or whatever the situation is. Because in this situation where all these things come together, I've had success in the past and here I'm having it again today. Yeah. And so it reinforces that you need to, um, you know, be in certain situations and put yourself in situations to have success when everything comes together. Now that's uh very, very, very well put. Uh, so to flip that around, what, what are some of the conditions that get you excited? Like what are some of those 
conditions that bring back some of those old memories where you're like, Oh, everything's lining up. I better do this. Well, I mean, it's, it can be a lot of things. I mean, cold weather always helps almost all the time. Um, you know, uh, frost, you know, moisture, bad weather. I mean, a lot of people think, you know, well, I'm just going to go out when it's, it's pretty out. You know, a lot of photographers that I know, are all hung up on this. Oh, I got to get the golden light and I've got to have yeah. this artistically beautiful photo. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the, the things that I've uh, been successful with my photography career is that the editors of the magazines don't always want the beautiful, perfectly lit deer photo to illustrate their article on hunting, you know, hunting in bad weather, hunting when it's raining or whatever yeah. the situation is. I go out every day no matter what. And so I'm photographing deer in every condition that they're in, it, whether it's dumping snow, if it's dumping rain, uh, if it's blowing wind, uh, whatever the situation is. That's a good one. So I'm out there. speak to that if you don't mind, because I, I know personally people that if they walk out their door in the morning, you know, before it's daylight and it's real windy, they'll go, they'll go climb back in bed. So speak to some of your experiences in very windy conditions. Well, I'll tell you this, as far as, and this isn't a deer related one, but it is a turkey related one. And I don't know if we're allowed to speak about uh, turkeys on this Absolutely. podcast, but I'm going to. Hey, the very, no joke, the very first uh, episode that we did is with a, a local buddy of mine that makes custom turkey calls. Like that okay. was episode number one on the Horny Deer Sense podcast. Is All right, here we calls. go. All right. Well then, here, here's a situation where I learned and I did it one time and I've never done it again in probably the last 30 years since this happened. But <laughs> okay. when I was early on in my career, I was actually uh, hunting in Kentucky trying to uh, kill my first turkey when I was in my 20s. And I was hunting uh, at a, uh, in the land between the lakes area uh, in uh, uh, basically uh, Kentucky, between Kentucky Lake and Barkley Lake in Kentucky and Tennessee. And um, I didn't go out this one morning because it was supposed to be a bad storm the next morning. I didn't go out, but the guy that I was rooming at his place that let me, you know, stay in his guest room, he was a turkey hunter. He went out and I was just waking up and he came to my room, knocked on the door. Hey, I got something to show you. And it had stormed that night and that next morning, thundering, lightning, everything. And he said that it was one of the most incredible mornings of gobbling he's ever heard because at every clap of thunder in the in the distance the turkeys would gobble like crazy and oh. he had a big old long beard in the back of the truck that he <laughs> killed that morning and so i was hunting i wasn't photographing at that point i was trying to kill one first and then i was going to go photograph turkeys after that for the rest of my trip well that would have been a perfect morning for me to photograph turkeys in the rain or you know in, in inclement weather yeah. and i slept in and I have never done that since. If it's supposed to be bad weather, I, that's not bad weather to me. Because to me, bad weather means that the deer are going to be moving or the fish are going to be biting. Absolutely. And so I go out one way or the other, no matter what. And I have not slept in since then uh, when I've been out, you know, on a photo shoot. Uh, no, uh, I love it. And I've got a, I've been in a couple of those situations too. And uh, just, there's no way to go back in time. But if you could go back and like maybe slap yourself around a little bit, no, I've, I'll probably have three of those moments next week too, but <laughs> I've definitely experienced those. Uh, so 
as far as and you've taken some you know, just ridiculous uh pictures of some ridiculous bucks are there any particular shoots that are just cemented in your mind like if you if you had to go back over your career and pick maybe five situations in you know n- not saying it's the biggest buck you've ever photographed but just a situation or experience that sticks out in your mind mm, i i don't know i mean i've had some you know days that i i came out of that day saying this is one of the most incredible you know photos you know afternoons where the deer just cooperated and you know, I had action and behavior and, you know, all the things came together and it just seemed like, you know, one back buck after another was, you know, coming out like almost on cue. Yeah. Um, in those situations, who knows what the reason was, it was right. happening. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, be lucky rather than good as they say, uh, whenever I get it, you know? Um, but, um, I'm trying to think if there's, uh, any particular situation where, um, that kind of thing happened. I'll tell you this, there was a situation where I was photographing in Ohio. This is uh, September, 2011. And um, I was, uh, had, had basically two blind setups, one for the afternoon, one for the morning in different parts of this property. And middle of the day, after I'd sat in the morning blind, it was hot. It was in the eighties. Uh, I was in, you know, camel pants and a t-shirt. Um, and was doing middle of the day, uh, it was cloudy. And so I was doing hunter photos middle of the day. And I was, you know, getting guys up in tree stands and shooting photos of them. And, and the hunter photos that I shoot and all the other photographers in the national magazines, we're not sneaking up on hunters as they're about to kill a deer. <laughs> we are actually going and doing what I call hunter setups where we, you know, I, I used to take like a sporting goods store with me in my suburban when I travel around the United States, you know, when I was in, you know, younger in my life. Uh, when I didn't have a family and all that kind of stuff. And we would, you know, I'd have four or five tree stands with me and I'd stick a tree stand up there and I'd get a, you know, one of my buddies that would model for me, even though he was no supermodel and uh, get him up there and drawing bows and aiming guns and all that kind of stuff. Well, I was doing that during this day, middle of the day, uh, trying to be as productive every minute of the day as I could. Uh, When the deer were bedded up, they weren't, you know, moving middle of the day. So um, I was trying to shoot hunter photos. And so I did that and I was all sweaty and I was running late to get my afternoon blind by the time I wanted to be in there. Like, let's say I wanted to be in there at three o'clock or whatever. Well, I got in the blind and the wind was blowing from that blind right at the deer. And this, this was back, you know, in 2011. Uh, before this day, I pretty much had to pick a blind or a situation that the lighting was right and the background was right. Uh, only when the wind was in the right direction. But the thing that was king was always the wind direction. I always had to go to, if I had a choice of blinds, I had to go to a blind based on wind direction and not based on what the best background and lighting was to make a good photo. And so because wind was king, um, you know, it, it was always tough for me for all those years, you know, from basically 1985 till 2011, I had to go where the wind was, was right. So what changed Um, in 2011, if you don't mind me asking? Well, in this situation here, I sat in this blind and the wind was blowing straight. And I was, I was photographing over a feeder and uh, on the edge of this cornfield and it was goldenrod there. It was just a beautiful place. It was, you know, the end of summer and I was just like fluorescent goldenrod all over the place and with a cornfield in the background. And um, the, 
problem was, is that was my afternoon setup where the lighting was supposed to be right. Problem was the wind wasn't right because my wind was blowing right at the feeder. So I sat there and I was just like, man, this is going to be a waste of an afternoon. So in came a doe and she had this black spot on her, on her right ear. I can still remember it. And here it is nine years later. That's awesome. Came in downwind to me, smelled, put her nose up snorted and did that snorting every bound as she ran away. <laughs> yeah. No, and I knew it was going to happen. I knew nothing else was going to come in. Well, nothing else came in for the rest of the afternoon. Um, and I knew that there was a bachelor group of bucks that there was four, um, you know, like hit list type bucks in this bachelor group, you know, with a couple other smaller ones, right. but there was, you know, four mature bucks and I knew they were smart. I knew they weren't going to be coming in uh, with her snorting off like she did. So, the rest of the afternoon, I basically looked at the goldenrod in the cornfield. And that was, uh, and I didn't, you know, I shot some photos of her when she was downwind of me. I got photos of her with her nose up, with her black dot in her ear. And um, anyway, she, uh, she took off. Next day, same exact scenario. You know, it was predominant wind direction. In the morning, I sat in a blind, got some photos because the wind was right for that. Um, did the hunter photos middle of the day. I was, you know, my t-shirt was soaking wet. I was, I was stinking. I didn't have time to get in the shower and, you know, do the, you know, the scentless soap and all that kind of stuff. But the difference was on the second day, um, when I, um, had done hunter photos, uh, one of the companies had sent me a thing that was supposed to work for getting rid of scent and it, it's called an ozone unit or ozonics unit. Um, so and, I, I am familiar. I've never tried one personally, but I've heard some very good things. Well, see, I hadn't either. I just heard about this thing. And so I read the instructions and uh, I was just using it as a prop. They sent it to me not to use. They sent it to me to have in my photos. And they were hoping if they got their you know product in the photos that maybe they'd sell some. So they sent it to me for that reason only. And so I thought, you know, I've heard about this thing. It's supposed to you know, get rid of human scent and all this stuff. Let me try it. And so the second afternoon, same exact scenario. Wind was blowing right at the deer. I had a sweaty t-shirt. I same exact blind I was at the afternoon, you know, previous afternoon. The only difference was the one difference was that I had that ozone unit, that ozonics unit up in the hub of the blind right above my head. And I read the instructions. You're supposed to aim it toward the window that, you know, the, the where this, you know, wind is blowing to and and so I aimed it at the front window where my camera was pointing out. Well, about an hour later, in came Miss Black Spot Ear Doe. <laughs> and I was like, oh, crap. This isn't going to be just good. just waiting at this she, point. She comes in downwind, just almost identical to the way she did the day before. Started smelling and walked a few yards closer to me, smelled again. And then she put her nose down and went to the feeder and started feeding. Really? And I mean, the wind was blowing directly at her. I mean, the just like situation. it was the afternoon before. That's impressive. Uh, now I've heard uh, multiple people in, this was what, 2011. So you, I know they've had to come even further. I, I know somebody was telling me about uh, like battery life and everything getting a lot better, but that's a, uh, to have the, the very same situation on back-to-back -back days, I can see where that would make a believer out of somebody. Well, here, here's what made a believer out of me. I didn't get to finish the story. Oh, let's go. After she went to the feeder, about an hour later, in came the bachelor group of bucks. Oh, that I really? And those four mature bucks out of six, there were six bucks total, four mature bucks 
came out, you know, the mature ones, and fed it the feeder for two hours downwind of me. That would have never, ever happened. That's actually know, impressive. Any situation. So I have sat for the last nine years um, with an ozonics unit with me in every situation where I'm sitting somewhere. If I'm stalking or whatever, I don't do it, use it in that situation. But if I'm in a blind or set up next to a tree, I have my ozonics unit there. Really? And I will not sit there again without it. I could tell you story after story after story that would convince you that it is worth the $400 to buy one. To give no. you an idea of how much I like them, I've got three of them now. <laughs> wow. And I have one as a backup in case one of my other two quit working. But I have two of them because I also do photos of like a hunter up in a tree stand and me in a blind in, in a field, let's say, uh, where I know deer are coming in. And I'll get photos of deer in between, whitetail bucks in between me and the hunter up in the tree stand. Wow. I'll have him with one and me with one. And I know that one way or the other, they're going to smell us one way or the other. And we're basically surrounding the deer. With the Ozonics unit, I can get the deer in between us without them spooking. Well, and it means a lot more coming from you because, I mean, the evidence is in the content that you put out. You're around deer, like, how many out of the course of a year how many days are you in the field on average um i used to be gone a lot more when i was single um i used to be gone as much as six months of the year um and i i would have been gone year round if i could have afforded it um and that i if i did need to sell my photos but six months of the year i've got to be in the office getting the photos ready to send yeah. out to the magazines gotcha um so i would be gone basically four months straight from September through December, photographing elk, mule deer, whitetails, all that kind of stuff through the whole fall. And then I'd be gone a month in the spring photographing turkeys and a month in the summer photographing bass fishing photos. So I was gone six months of the year. Wow. Um, but now with a family, um, I don't travel as much. Uh, we've got four kids. We actually homeschool our four kids so that they can travel with me on my trips, on my photo shoots. Um, and I'm gone. I mean, some years are different than others, um, you know, where I'm only gone a couple of months of the, of the year. Uh, but usually I, I do three, you know, three to five trips at three to four weeks each. So, you know, it can be, you know, three to four months of the year uh, yeah. that I'm gone now as a married guy. Now, I'm, I'm so I'm like seriously sitting here wondering if my wife has bought my Christmas present yet. <laughs> and if she has can she take it back wherever she got it? <laughs> <laughs> well you never know well and i think you know kind of where we started as far as like beginner's tips you know if somebody's uh starting out you wear black in your blind and taking ozonics with you and that'll be a you know you got a pretty good leg up just from the very get-go from a lot of things that you know, in years past that people have had to continue with, particularly when it comes to scent. That, speaking of turkey hunting, that was the, the, honestly, the thing that brought me over. I went, you know, most of my life without turkey hunting and uh, finally did get into it. But what I love most about it was not hearing a turkey blow at me <laughs> when it winded me, you know, just not right. having to worry, just not having to worry about that. That, that one part alone was very attractive about turkey hunting. Well, you know what? I've actually used 
my ozonics unit when turkey hunting believe it or not oh i'm sure and i know turkey do smell just not at the a level a deer does but you still i mean you can't you can't just totally disregard scent even with turkey no actually it wasn't because of the turkeys it oh, was well. because i would get busted i was sitting in a field or at the edge of a field uh, and the deer would come out and start blowing and snorting <laughs> and all that stuff and spook the turkeys off I so I, I actually, in some situations, would use my ozonics unit so that the deer get comfortable and don't spook the turkeys. Yeah, I like it. Well, and I've been on the fence for a couple of years now and haven't purchased one. Uh, but after this conversation, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and pull the trigger. Again, you're out there all the time. That was one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you. You're just this side of living with them you know what i mean right well i i'm not sponsored by ozonics uh they sent me you know that the the first one way back when um but and i would love to be sponsored by them i would love to yeah. not be spending 400 bucks for each one um but i will tell you this of all the technology i use because i use a lot of technology with my camera equipment I would say the number one technology outside of the new camera equipment and the, the advances that have been made with image stabilization and the high ISO digital cameras and all the incredible stuff that's with photography, the one bit of technology that is probably the non-camera related technology that, is, that has changed my photography for the better because I can just, all I have to do is think about Where's the best place to go for the best background and the best lighting, no matter the wind. And I don't even think about wind anymore. The one thing that has changed that for me for the better is that ozonics unit. That's impressive. I'm, I'm able to go wherever I want to sit because of the best scenario to get the best photo and not where I can keep from getting smelled by the well, deer. And you're not going to carry something if you don't need it as, as much as you're on the go. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, and kind of going back where the conversation started, as far as your love for the outdoors and wanting to share, you know, your passion and help hunters get better, especially going into the detail that you go into on each post. What are some things that you see hunters doing wrong and ways to correct those actions i guess well i think that probably uh, a lot of hunters get predictable um they tend to say i'm gonna sit till nine o'clock or ten o'clock and then i'm leaving the woods uh when maybe conditions are getting right or it's the rut and you need to sit there all day uh, i think the hunters tend to be predictable where they say i'm gonna go out at four o'clock in the afternoon or whatever where maybe they you know maybe the deer are coming in at two o'clock or one o'clock and they need to, you know, go out and, you know, be there, you know, middle of the day. Um, so I would think that's probably, you know, and I'm not saying all hunters are like this. I'm saying the average Joe that just goes out and is just trying to kill a buck. Yeah. Um, that's probably what they do. I, I was in New York state, uh, the last week of October, first week of November, uh, photographing deer out there and, I, you know, I was right there pre-rut and right at the rut. And I was out there every day um, for two weeks straight. And I was out there all day long. Um, there was one day where it was just, you know, 
terrible light middle of the day and it wouldn't have mattered if a buck came out it would have been terrible photos anyways and i took a nap one day out of two weeks so uh, when, when the conditions are right i mean i i'm a grinder and i will stay there as long as i need to now with a family the difficulty is is that you know they're at the hotel or airbnb oh, or at yeah. the lodge or whatever the situation is they want to go do stuff middle of the day so they're wanting to know, Dad, when are you going to be back? When are we going to go to the library or the museum or whatever the local thing is? You know, pick blueberries at this blueberry farm or whatever. You know, I've got to kind of be a dad and go, no matter if the bucks are going crazy, I've got to head back and pick them up and keep them <laughs> yeah. entertained. You know, because we're in one vehicle. And so I've got to, got to consider the family also. Oh, that, I mean, that's part of it. And so you're sitting there in your blind for hours on end. You've got a camera instead of a rifle or a bow. You're literally having to stay dialed in just to catch the shot that you need to catch because it could happen just in an instant. I mean, you could, right. if a deer comes out, you know, a lot of times you have time to grab your gun. You have time to grab your bow. You can relax a little bit at times. How do you stay so zoned in and ready to capture that moment well um i really i mean there there are a lot of times i don't i don't get the shot i mean i figure for every every great shot that i get i miss 12 things um and it's not because i'm sleeping or goofing off or whatever it's just you know if you're like let's say driving to your blind and a big buck jumps a fence yeah. You know, and I can't get the camera up fast enough to get it. Um, it could be any of a number of scenarios of why I don't get a shot, uh, where I see something great happening or something just happens so fast or it happens, you know, behind you. Like uh, I was, you know, photographing a buck, you know, that was uh, courting a doe that was tending a doe and they walked around behind me and, you know, behind my blind, like 10 yards behind me. And I could tell they were, they were breeding behind me. Uh, um, so, you know, there's things like that. So I figure for everything that I get for every photo, you know, you got to think about it. Every photo that I put on Instagram and Facebook is the one time that everything came together and I got <laughs> right. something great. There are also between those times, 12 times on average, sometimes it's three to four times, but I figure for, for every great photo I get, it's about 12 times, 12 things that I see or know happen that I don't get a photo of it or it's too dark or, you know, like a, a two bucks are fighting when it's too dark to photograph them. And you see one of the bucks, you know, in the very low light that flips the other one over his back, you know? Yeah. I've seen those things and couldn't photograph it because of the lighting situation. So I, I don't always catch everything. What everybody's seeing on my Instagram and Facebook pages is the day where everything came together and I wow. got the great shot. They don't see because there's no photo evidence of it of the days that I don't get anything. There's <laughs> yeah. no photos. What would I post? Something that's black, you know, yeah. you know, where there's nothing, <laughs> you know? So I only, people only see the great days. And what people don't realize also is that when I'm posting these photos, I like during this time of the year, I post, you know, three to four photos per day. And they, I guess a lot of people think that, you know, when I post something that I shot a picture and then I post it like right when it happened. <laughs> oh, really? The photos they're seeing are photos that I took last year 
or five years ago right. or 15 years ago. They're seeing, over, you know, what I've accumulated over the last, you know, 30 years of my career. They're not seeing what I'm shooting on a daily basis. You know, like when I was in New York, people are already contacting, when are you going to post those photos? And I told them, tell them, I haven't even looked at them. You know, I don't even know what they look like. I won't yeah. even look at them until this spring uh, when I'm getting them ready for the, you know, the fall issues, which the photo editors are wanting the photos during the summertime for the fall issues. Yeah, so yeah. people don't really understand how the whole photo thing happens. But for a professional photographer, I shoot the photos one fall to be able to sell them at the soonest the very next fall. I mean, I'll sell photos for 10 years because deer don't change their clothing styles, hairstyles, glasses styles like people do. You know, I, I uh, sold a, a photo uh, to uh, a magazine that I shot uh, just this fall, the, the uh, November cover. I won't tell you which cover, uh, magazine it is because I didn't tell the editor how old it was. <laughs> yeah. But I shot the photo 12 years ago. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, deer are deer. You know, they, yeah. they, they don't change their hairstyles and stuff. So. Um, I don't, you know, work on the photos until summertime because when the magazines are coming out, like let's say the no, that November issue, that editor was asking for photos back in the summer, back in like June and July. He wants them four to six months in advance. So in June and July, I'm not out trying to shoot photos um, because there's no fall colors or no rut going on yeah. in June and July. So I have to have the photos pre-shot and try to figure out what the editors want before they want them because I have to shoot everything in advance. Yeah. Well, and that probably a, a pretty good uh, segue into, you know, just one final topic before we cut this off. Um, you mentioned your part of your inspiration when you started, what was his name? Jerry Smith. Is that right? So you got Jerry Smith back uh, when you were looking into getting into this field, no doubt, especially with social media and all of the outlets that people see your work today, no doubt you are serving as that inspiration for a number of people interested in wildlife photography. And you don't have to go into a great deal of detail, but for somebody looking to do what you do, what's some words of advice that you would give them? Um, well, actually this morning I, I responded to three or four kids that were, you know, anywhere from 10 years old to 16 years old, they were wanting to know, you know, what kind of lenses do you use? Uh, what kind of cameras? Um, what advice do you have for me? And the advice that I send to most people um, is that what we talked about before, which is time in the field, um, you know, being out there every chance you can. I know they got to be in school um, or whatever, people have to work. Not everybody gets to have this as their full-time job. I'm very blessed and fortunate to have this as my full-time job and be able to be out in the woods more than most guys can be. Um, but what I tell people is every chance you get, no matter the conditions, no, no matter the weather, if it's hot, if it's windy, you know, you think of those worst case scenarios for deer, deer movement. I mean, I go out and I sit in it no matter what. And some days it'll surprise you. Most yeah. of the time it doesn't. Most of the time you're sitting there on your rear and you don't see anything. I mean, but that's still a learning opportunity. Uh, but what I tell people beyond time in the field is to not think of, and I'm talking about wildlife photography and bow hunters can learn from this too, um, not to think of lenses as being the way to get the photos that I get. 
what I tell people is to get your get the deer closer to you or you closer to the deer so you don't have to use you know a 1200 millimeter lens i use a 300 millimeter lens and a 500 millimeter lens which most people you know see these big huge white lenses that i use that are you know a foot across the front element and they think oh you got to be able to shoot a long way away like we were saying before but my 300 millimeter lens is the same as a 6x rifle scope or a 6x pair of binoculars who would go out with a 6x pair of binoculars <laughs> everybody's got 8 10 12 15 power binoculars right um and even then that doesn't bring it in nearly as much as a spotting scope you know that's a 20 to 25x or whatever uh, my 500 millimeter lens is the same as a 10x rifle scope or binoculars which you know does a pretty good job of magnification but the thing is, um, most of my photos, like I said, were 50 yards or less, and most of them are in the 20 to 30 yard range. I don't photograph them at 500 yards away. So my advice to young guys and people that are new to wildlife photography, everybody's, you know, people are going out and trying to buy these thousand millimeter lenses and stuff that are so dark, you can't, you gotta have middle of the day light when no deer are moving uh, to try to photograph with them. I tell them just use the normal focal length lenses of three, four, 500 millimeter lenses, but get yourself closer to the, to the deer where they're going to come out or get the deer close to you, rattle them in, bring them in uh, somehow uh, with feed or whatever, you know, uh, at an apple tree or something, wherever they're, you know, concentrating at and coming in, you know, bring them in close to you or you go closer to them. Um, and that that's through blinds and that's how I do it is you know most a lot of the places i go to if it's a hunted place they've got you know let's say a deer feeder at 100 yards and a blind set up you know like here in texas that's the standard you know every place you go 100 yards between the the deer blind and a feeder yeah and so if i go and photograph on those places uh, i can't photograph at 100 yards because the deer is going to be a little tiny you know piece of the of the photo so what i do is i get a blind up close to the feeder and so, you know, I'll have that feeder or that blind where I'll set it up at 50 yards, let's say, let it sit there for three or four days. And then after they get used to that, then I'll move it into 25 yards, half the distance and set it up and then let it sit there for a couple more days. Let them get used to it. At night, they'll come in and they'll smell it. They'll stick their nose in the window, check it out, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you got to let them get used to it until they think that it's just a part of the terrain around there. It could be in the wide open and they'll get used to it if you give them enough time. Right. And you don't sit in it. That's the other important thing. If you try to sit in it, they smell you, you and they're gonna know there's danger inside there. There's something hidden in there that's like a, a monster in their minds yeah. is gonna jump out and get them. So I don't sit it until the deer have gotten used to it. And if I've got trail cameras on that feeder or that scrape or that food plot or whatever, I won't sit it until the, the buck starts coming back into it during daylight. And so I'll go sit it and sometimes i succeed sometimes i don't but they need to not think of lenses as being the thing that you need to try to draw a distant deer in from 500 yards trying to get this great photo i don't do that myself my lenses have limits and so i get myself closer to the deer time and that's how field. i do it is through blinds time in the field and get get close exactly boom lance i think that's a pretty excellent way yeah I could sit and listen to you talk about what you do all day. Uh, just, it, it fascinates me. And I think that's one of the, the common bind or common, common ties that bind outdoorsmen 
when even when we're not pulling a trigger or a release or you know whatever weapon there's still something majestic about watching a white-tailed deer and the fact that you've got to spend a large portion of your life doing that i i just think it's awesome and uh i really appreciate you taking the time appreciate you sharing you know the knowledge that you've shared uh i promise you we'll continue being a fan on our end and if there's anything that we can ever do to pay you back for your time you just let me know i appreciate you having me i've enjoyed it absolutely well lance uh hopefully might might try to get back with you come turkey season and let you drop some knowledge on turkey too how's that hey it sounds good i love them both man i meet up with turkeys that's it well lance you have a good one brother all right man thank you so much hope you enjoyed getting to spend some time with lance kruger i really enjoy connecting with him and getting a better glimpse into his world it absolutely fascinates me the amount of time that he's spent in the outdoors and you know really just the deer that he's laid eyes on and been able to capture with his camera as always really appreciate you listening to the horny deer sense podcast and we'll see you next week